Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about abuse and Christian celebrity. Uh, Before we jump into that content, though, I want to remind you of what we have to offer over at chrismoles.org. chrismoles.org is where you can find out more information about the ministry of PeaceWorks and what we do. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to something I've mentioned week after week, and that's PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site for people helpers. And there you will find, I believe, one of the most robust collections of resources for people helpers uh, seeking to address domestic abuse from a gospel-centered perspective. So be sure to check that out. I think that's your next best step if you've been following the podcast is to get connected with us at PeaceWorks University. You can find out more about that at chrismoles.org. Well, at the time of this recording, and it is March 1st, 2021, as I record this podcast, the evangelical world has continued to experience um, disappointment, um, discouragement, frustration, anger with particular leaders who have achieved celebrity status in the Christian world, I guess you'd say. In particular, uh, the revelations that came out regarding Robbie Zacharias. Now, Uh, I have been asked to give my thoughts on um, the Robbie Zacharias situation and um, haven't had a whole lot that I I felt I could add to the story, but I am going to try today uh, to at least uh, dialogue with you a little bit from a batterer intervention perspective, from an abuse perspective, uh, because quite frankly, that's what happened in the Robbie Zacharias story. First of all, I think it's important that you all know as listeners, um, and this is true, I, I, I just want to be completely honest with you, I have very little knowledge of Robbie Zacharias as a minister or a presenter or a speaker. Uh, I've never been a huge fan or proponent of apologetics. I know what apologetic, apologetics are. I had to study some in college back in the 90s. Uh, And while I do believe it's important for Christians to be able to defend their faith, uh, I've never seen apologetics as a separate discipline and certainly not an apologist as a Christian office. So full disclosure, I really know little of Zacharias's content. I don't think I've ever listened to an entire presentation. That surprises a lot of people. Uh, because I have cited him many times, and, and here's the context. So one thing that Robbie Zacharias and I have in common, and something that has benefited me in the past, is that we were both ordained by the same denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Now the CMA is a small denomination, in particular in the United States, and so sometimes when talking with brothers and sisters from other denominations, other theological tribes, when describing who I am and where I come from, 
sometimes it helps to cite others in the movement. My first go-to is always A.W. Tozer. Tozer was a prominent CMA pastor, but some of my friends and some of the circles I travel in are not as familiar with Tozer or see Tozer that favorably. Uh, in particular, my Reform brothers and sisters may not be as aware of Tozer, and so my second go-to would often be Zacharias. Just knowing that he was ordained in the CMA and respected in certain circles, I would throw his name out there. Looking back, I wish I had some familiarity with his work. I just assumed, like many people, that his work was solid. And I, from what I've heard, and I was listening to a podcast not long ago where people were talking about how solid his work is. Um, but again, full disclosure, I, I don't have much familiarity with the man or his work. But we do share that in common. And that's a key part of the story, as the CNMA did not do a great job in their investigation. They actually failed in many ways. So let's talk just a little bit about what we do know and what I can speak to, even though I don't know the man personally and am not positioned to um, evaluate or critique his work. Well, here's what we know. From the most recent report, uh, after I believe it was four months of investigation, this is following his death, which occurred in May, um, we now know that his life and ministry was marked with abuse, coercion, and manipulation. That hundreds of women, right, were victims uh, and scores of red flags were present throughout. Now, I say hundreds of victims, although I think the number is closer in the confirmation range to, you know, half a dozen. He had hundreds of photographs on his phone. He had multiple accusations uh, associated with these massage parlors. He had um, multiple testimonies and many, many red flags, including uh, non-disclosure agreements, which are something that um, to me are a big red flag in Christian ministries. Uh, also, uh, not allowing the, I believe it was the CNMA investigators to even look at his phone was a huge red flag for me. The truth is, and this is something I think we have to be firm about. The truth is, Robbie Zacharias was an abuser who manipulated his power, position, and authority to coerce individuals uh, into sexual uh, acts. We call that sexual assault, or we call it rape. It was rapacious behavior, and it's wrong. It's wicked in all its forms. It's sinful. And I think we have to start there because so many in the Christian world want to start with how one gets there rather than starting with where one is. And I think we have to be honest with the fact that this man had used his power to coerce, control, and abuse others. I think we'll find out through further investigation that it wasn't limited uh, to sexual assault, although that's grievous enough, that's disqualifying enough for sure. But I think we'll find accounts of fraud and money laundering and lies upon lies upon lies. I've heard repeatedly how sad this is, and it is sad. And I'm not sad for, for Zacharias. I mean, if anything, I'm sad in part that justice wasn't seen. I'm sad for the victims. I'm heartbroken uh, for those who were manipulated, for the victims who were hurt so grievously, for the bystanders who were 
um, colluded into um, supporting the abuse narrative for the ministry that is now crushed. I do feel bad, uh, but certainly not for Ravi Zacharias. Um, and certainly I can at least take some solace or comfort in knowing that he has to stand before a holy God and be held accountable. But it, we also had a responsibility to hold him accountable here. What causes stuff like this? I mean, that's the question that's been coming up a lot. What causes this stuff? The truth is out there. and We have to be firm and um, honest about the truth of the matter. Abuse, sexual assault, this is the truth. It's not, it can't be softened. What causes this though? And I think that's the thing that maybe we can speak to as people helpers. Some have suggested that his celebrity status caused the abuse. Well, that's certainly not the case. Did it contribute? Yeah. I mean, anytime you have that level of power and fame, it can contribute to abuse. Can it not? I mean, abuse really at its heart is centered in entitlement. So if an individual is being celebrated without proper checks and balances, if a person is accepting that celebration as necessary and warranted, which apparently he was considering the ways in which he was manipulating women and the certain phrases that he was using. He was in some ways drinking his own Kool-Aid or buying his own product. That level of entitlement will produce abuse, but celebrity alone does not do that because there are plenty of folks with little to no fame that are abusing their power in much the same way. Maybe not to the extent, maybe they don't have the reach that this individual did, but it's not celebrity alone. Now, granted, I agree with those who call for an end to celebrity pastors. I think celebrity ministry is, um, is demonic in, in many ways. It's, it's anti-Christ. It's uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, I recall uh, meeting a celebrity pastor having a very poor experience uh, at a, um, in a green room type environment and just being appalled at the self-centeredness um, and had little surprise later when similar you know, accusations of bullying and abuse came out. It didn't surprise me, although I had no evidence at the time. Celebrity can create an environment that um, invites abusive behavior. And certainly that was the case, but not the cause. So don't mistake um, the, the thoughts that celebrity creates abuse. It, it's certainly rife with it. It certainly gives the opportunity for it. But make no mistake, abuse begins in the heart of an abuser. This is not a moral failure. That's been another thing that's come out. Um, to, to, to pray for an individual over their moral failure, this is not, and I, and I don't want to qualify sin and say one sin is worse than the other, but, but we do need to understand that abuse is a very unique category of sin in the way in which it harms others. Um, this is very distinct from the pastor who has an emotional affair with the church receptionist. While that is sinful, that requires discipline, it is certainly disqualifying. We are talking about an individual who sexually assaulted scores of women, hundreds of women exploited. Uh, this is a grave sin. This is a, a level of wickedness that goes beyond a moral failure. You do not stumble into 
this kind of wickedness. Can I say that again? You do not stumble into this kind of wickedness. This grows over time. So certainly it's not caused by celebrity. It cannot be qualified as a simple moral failure. And I think that's one of the areas where some Christian leaders have found themselves uh, in some um, interesting dynamics trying to qualify what they've said. I'm going to talk about that towards the end of the podcast, though. Uh, This is not an addiction. I've heard that said. I mean, an individual who uses their power uh, to manipulate others, to coerce others into sexual um, conduct, to blackmail, which was part of that, um, into sexual conduct, and then to spiritually abuse individuals by citing God, by praying together, uh, and so on. That's certainly not an addiction. We cannot simplify a person's sin to say, well, they couldn't help it. So what it does, and this is classic, right? It goes back to minimization. And so when we collude with that narrative, we intentionally or unintentionally um, diminish or minimize both the impact and the extent of the abuse. When we say something like, evidently, Ravi Zacharias had a sexual addiction, we somehow remove culpability from him and place it upon an outside or extenuating force that compels someone to abuse. That's not the case. That's not the case. The, the second thing that we do in, in these comments is when we reduce it to a moral failure, then we again fall victim to the incident-based approach, right? which maybe that would have been true with a singular incident. It still would have required grave consequences. It still needs to be said that why was discipline and investigation and accountability not held for that? But to, to a greater degree, this is not a moral failure. This is a continual habitual act of abuse perpetrated over apparently uh, over a decade or more. And of course, it's not caused by celebrity. I mean, there are individuals in prominent positions who choose to use their power well, who choose not to harm others with power. I think those have to be key points as we're moving forward with this discussion. Is there anything we can learn from this? Yeah. I mean, at this point, that's really all we can do. I know there's a lot of outrage. I get it. I was outraged. I'm always outraged when I see uh, this type of power uh, abused and people left in the wake. It's, it's hurtful. I hate this. Um, but I also know that the mistakes that were made in the past, as far as accountability, can't be undone in the past. We have to hold each other accountable. We have to go back and we have to make repairs and say, okay, things have got to be done differently. Here's the first thing I think we need to do differently, church. And I think you as people helpers, Um, those of you listening to the PeaceWorks podcast, you can be frontline leaders in this. The first thing we can do to move forward to at least reduce these incidents, because I don't think we'll prevent them from happening, but reduce these these incidents is to believe victims. The one thing that I saw throughout this process was that victims were apparently silenced whether it be by RZ, by Ravi Zacharias himself, or um, by the ministry, or by individuals who couldn't believe 
that he would engage in such behavior. Victims need to be believed. And um, that's our first step. I believe you. I hear what you're saying. I believe your experience. Let's take the next steps together. Secondly, church, I think we have to be persistent. And this is a statement, you know, directly to my friends at the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, I wasn't consulted on this case. I don't know why I would be. Uh, I'm just a pastor in the CMA. But I was disappointed uh, back in the fall. So I, I didn't really, this was all coming to light to me. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this to my knowledge until after his death. If if I did see something, I've, I've forgotten. So um, I was very disappointed in the response of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And my major concerns, and I have a little post-it note here somewhere with it, my major concerns were that the investigation was internal, that the denomination did not hire a third party, that the investigation was conducted at the level of the board of managers, I believe, which uh, to my knowledge, did not have a female voice. Um, and I was discouraged that the investigation did not last, that it was a very brief investigation. Now, since then, some other things have come to light that um, have also added to that disappointment. And so I'll just say it. If any of my CMA brothers and sisters are watching, I think we need to be aware of this. I don't know the whole story. I haven't talked to the people directly involved, but... I've later come to understand that um, Zacharias would not grant um, permission to look at his phone. And I think that's a major red flag, and I think that should have been enough uh, for the CMA to persevere, to persist uh, with the investigations. And uh, I also think there was some other elusive behavior on his part that should have encouraged persistence. Uh, there was also a, um, a um, non-disclosure, that's what I'm looking for, a non-disclosure agreement in place with one of the victims. And I think that was a hurdle that couldn't be circumvented, but certainly should have been informative. A non-disclosure agreement that indicates, right, that I can't talk to you about the abuse I experienced should be another red flag for us to be persistent. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't engaged in the conversations. I'm not sure my engagement would have made a difference. I may have fallen right in line and, and, and that's going to be another lesson we're going to talk about. But I do believe we have to be persistent. Since then, the CNMA, and I obviously can't commend them for the failure um, of the initial report, but since, uh, hopefully, uh, we will serve victims better in the future as they have stated that th their mistakes. They have stated, at least to those of us in the denomination, that they will be hiring third parties moving forward. That's a huge benefit. Um, that they will be including women's voices in the process. And they will not be ordaining at the national level. Now, I didn't even know this was a case. I, I really thought that um, Zacharias went through the same process that I did. I was ordained at the district level, so I had to have a licensing interview with the district superintendent. I had to take exams, uh, both written exams and oral exams. I had to meet with a mentor 
another pastor for my ordination. My ordination process took two years and it concluded with a written exam that took me eight hours and followed up a few weeks later by an oral exam uh, to, to test me both theologically and um, personally. This was when I was 25 years old. I assumed that Robbie Zacharias went through the same process. I, I came to find out that that wasn't the case. I don't know what his process was, but I know it occurred at the national office, not at the local level. And I've been told that that will no longer be happening. That ordination will only be happening at the local level. Now that's no guarantee, because manipulative people will do what, what they do. Um, but having that type of accountability at the local level is certainly more desirable than having it come out of an institution or a national office. I don't want to be too hard on the CNMA, but that is my people. And so I think it's important that we learn those lessons and that they do a better job moving forward. That's the second lesson. So the first, we got to believe victims. Second, we need to be persistent. All right. Um, a couple other lessons. Yes, I think we need to acknowledge that failure can escalate. I've seen some folks online who have come out with statements about encouraging pastors and speakers and ministry leaders to guard their heart, using Robbie as an example. And from a, a victim perspective, it will appear as sin leveling. It will appear as minimization. And in some cases it is. However, I do think it's important that we recognize that while I would like individuals to word things differently or start their uh, discussions maybe the same way that I started ours this, this morning or, or during this podcast, right? Here's the truth. Abuse, abuse, abuse. I think it is fair to say that, yes, failure can escalate. This type of entitlement, coercion, control, manipulation starts somewhere. It doesn't start where it ends. It always escalates. And so, yes, pastors, ministry leaders, there are temptations out there. There are barriers and landmines. And if you don't establish proper accountability, if you don't check your own heart, if you don't embrace the gospel, not just for salvation, but for sanctification, um, then don't be surprised if you look back one day and regret the the path that you took. Does that mean you're going to be a serial habitual abuser like we're talking about today? Maybe, maybe not. There might be wiser ways to talk about this, but I do think we need to talk about the fact that yes, abuse starts somewhere. It escalates. And that is something that everyone should take into account. And the church really needs, in my opinion, to focus more on the hearts of the individual serving than the dangers of that come from the individuals they are serving. So I think the purity culture has done a disservice to both men and women by, um, I want to say indirectly, although it's direct, but you know, subtly suggesting that women are predators and pastors are prey. Not the case. Pastors, church leaders, ministry leaders hold a significant amount of power, and how they use that is how they'll be judged. And so do, do not think for a moment that you're exempt from the accountability, the responsibility, the justice, or the judgment of God just because you sat in the pastor's seat. The exact opposite is true. 
you are held to a higher standard and a higher responsibility. And so, yes, you should guard your heart. You should really ask the question, why are you getting in ministry? And if you're getting in ministry for fame, power, some kind of um, comfort, then I would suggest you get out because this type of stuff will escalate and your heart will be revealed. And God help us as church leaders and church members and ministry followers, God help us to hold people accountable with greater zeal and passion than we have in the past. And that's my last warning. My last warning today for all of us is yes, all of us can be blinded by manipulation. The real story, I think, is not could we find ourselves in Ravi's shoes. Very few people could at that particular level. I get that. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is could we find ourselves in the shoes of those on the board or in the shoes of those at the denominational level or in the shoes of those who were harmed? Could we actually find ourselves colluding with an abuser and with manipulation, with coercion? Because that's the real danger for us, isn't it? Can we be blinded by that? Yeah, I think so. And so we've got to be just as persistent as we're calling our denominational leaders to be. We've got to be just as passionate about the gospel and we have to understand the dangers associated with power um, and be willing to believe. So a little longer today, uh, PeaceWorks podcast friends, but as I land the plane uh, on this episode, let's be believers. Let's believe when victims come to us. Let's be persistent as we pursue truth. Let's acknowledge that sin can escalate and let's guard our own hearts, right? And make the main thing the main thing. Of course, the main thing's not us. And then let's acknowledge that we can be blinded. So we need each other to shine the light, right? To embrace truth and hope. Okay? I appreciate you all. Thank you for joining me on the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time, God bless.